Welcome to Crazy Stupid Love with me, Barnaby Slater. In this new podcast series, I'm inviting guests onto the show and asking them to come armed with something they'd like to discuss to do with their relationship, love, or sex lives. And then, quite simply, we talk about it. But for the first episode, I wanted to get an understanding myself of why I've always loved talking to people about their relationships, and even at times felt able to offer my opinions on what is happening in friends' and family's love lives, despite the fact that, well, to be honest, I haven't always been that successful when it comes to matters of the heart myself. The main reason I've always thought that I'm fascinated by this subject is because of my relationship with my guest today, the amazing, incredible Stephanie de Sykes, who just so happens to be my mother. Welcome to the show, Mum. How are you? Hello, my son. Uh, I'm good. So we're in your conservatory. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of flowers about. And uh, we're pretty much keeping to the rules of uh, the pandemic lockdown. We're, we're towards the back end. I'm about to get my jab. That's yes. how we are. That's where we're at. I think we'll be all right. I think we're going to be fine. Uh, Certainly so- you didn't give me a kiss or a hug when I picked you up at the station. <laughs> That's what all of my guests say. That's the first thing they always say. Um, now, uh, as I kind of mentioned in the intro, I've always thought that I've been drawn to people, uh, to talking to people about relationships because of the time that you and I spent together when my brother moved out. Yes. Which is when I was about um, kind of between 14, 15 and 18 and we lived alone together. And by my recollection, I was kind of going through peak uh, adolescence, puberty stuff. And I think you were going through the menopause, although that maybe that's something I've made up myself. No, no, you're, you're spot on. You're spot on. And I've always kind of uh, come up with this narrative that that kind of period, although it was often difficult, also bonded us closer together. Absolutely right. And, and then I also have in my head this kind of towards the back end of that time, or maybe certainly in my early 20s, that kind of thing happening where your relationship as a child... Uh, swaps round with your parents. So you started coming to me about matters of uh, love and sex, less sex, but kind of relationships and your love life and telling me a bit more about that. So uh, do you think that's kind of a a fair enough uh, description of how you remember it? I think your memory is probably sharper than mine, but I think you pretty much nailed it, yes. Okay, and um, so... You know, I've spoken on uh, some of my other podcast stuff about my relationship with uh, my father and my stepfather. And I wanted to ask you, having brought up two boys or bringing up two boys, but having had history with their father figures of um, trust issues and relationship uh, adultery issues as well. How did that make it? Did that make it more difficult for you raising two boys or how did you feel you had to act with your sons in a way, I guess, to try and make sure they didn't follow a similar path? Well, it's what an intelligent question. <laughs> I'm really Why shocked. do you sound so surprised? <laughs> um, yes, I, of course I was aware of it. On the other hand, I was aware of the danger of, of brainwashing you. I didn't want to do that either. But I was... To, be, to give you both your due, I was aware of the fact that you too gradually you started making comments which indicated that you it wasn't a, that wasn't a course that you wished to follow in your lives. Mm. Um, I therefore assumed that you'd probably both get married very young and stay with the same wife forever, and I couldn't have been more wrong because neither of you is married. 
um, and you've you've dealt with it in a different way. But I don't think, from my knowledge, that either of you has become a, a serial shagger, mm. a liar, cheat. Mm. You know that that was always I think that you did know that the important thing was I I said to you both, and I did brainwash you in this regard, was the importance of honesty. And I've sort of beat myself up over that in more recent years because I feel that maybe I imposed my obsession upon you guys, which I perhaps, given that time again, I would have tried to avoid doing. And where does your obsession with honesty come from? I don't know. I really don't know. It just seemed so simple. You, you know. told, just sorry to interrupt, but you told a story to me when I was pretty young, and I think you've told it a few times, about how your father, my grandfather, would refuse to find himself alone in a room with a woman who wasn't his wife. Well, it, it, no, it wasn't quite it. like that. No, it, it, I know that where he worked, they had a canteen, and he would get his food and he'd take his tray, and if if the only space available was on a table with a single woman sitting on it, he he wouldn't go there. Um, Because he'd be tempted or because it might look like he was flirting or... Or maybe afraid that he was giving the wrong idea. To that woman, yeah. Yeah, Mm. I don't know. I mean, he was was a strange man, but he he was a faithful husband. And I I think very often although he had many faults that I wouldn't have wanted a partner of mine to uh, emulate. In that regard, it was something that I wanted and expected. But I never I never asked a partner to be faithful. I asked them to be honest. And I think you knew that. You probably heard me shouting that mm. in an argument. You, you've used the word brainwash. I think brainwash is an unfair term. I don't feel I've ever been brainwashed. You, I, you did have some rules. I remember some rules... You know, don't ride a motorcycle, don't take <laughs> drugs. A thing that came up in a podcast I did before with a um, a broadcaster called Emily Dean, who also grew up with a quite a similar upbringing in that her parents were both kind of liberal um, creatives. Mm-hmm. And she said that she felt she was adulted very early, which I then asked what did she feel that meant? And she said basically that the kind of liberal conversations that her parents would have in front of her when she was very young, really kind of seeped through without her realising. And so when you talk, you know, you've talked about the rules and brainwashing but and talking about the need for us to be honest, but have you ever thought about the reality of, you know, what was it possible that you were having those arguments in front of us too much or too early and we would have picked up things by osmosis without realising that it has affected our ability to have relationships or deal with these kinds oh, of things? Oh, well, quite possibly. I mean, I, I don't recall sort of having our, lots of arguments there in the same room as you, but of course, mm. I know your brother was very good at uh, <laughs> eavesdropping. Um, it, it, yes, I'm, and of course, vo- voices were raised, of course, mm. yes. But also maybe not just, I mean, I, I don't feel strongly that this is what happened, but I do know that, you know, I have recollections of probably hearing conversations between you and friends or you and, you know, maybe at parties we had or something. Yeah, oh, yes. Where, where I didn't understand what was going on. I'm sure my brother Toby is very intelligent. but And maybe he explained to me, I don't remember. Quite possibly. But that's kind of something that comes with potentially a more liberal upbringing where you're kind of um, 
more open. You're, 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 you're given access to more adult stuff than maybe more of a disciplined parenthood yes. would give you. So well, it has yes. its pros, but possibly also has some cons too. Of course it does. I wouldn't change a thing, by the way. I'm not suggesting I would. Well, I'm just intrigued the, by the, all this. The, the, bless you for saying that. Um, the, 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 the rule um, about being honest doesn't mean you have to just spill your guts all the time. You know, you, there are things that you can... You can avoid telling somebody, which I've clearly done. Um, I think we're going to talk about that later. Mm. Um, uh, I, I wasn't going to deliberately lumber you with information that, that you weren't ready to hear. Um, but that's not dishonest. and that, That's get it, trying to get your timing right, I think, mm. but with children. You have to be very careful. The other thing that you talking about, um, Grandpa, made me think is then... And then you actually saying, or you didn't ask either, you didn't ask, you know, my father or my stepfather to be faithful. You just asked them to be honest. Um, My instinct right then is, of course, if as a man, if a woman were to say that to me, not, I'm not even suggesting that necessarily you said to them, I doubt you ever said them, I'm not asking you to be faithful. Certainly not at the start. I'm not asking you to be faithful. I'm asking you to be honest. But if I did ever hear that as a man, straight away, I'd be thinking, what? what you're asking me to be is faithful, but you're saying it in a different well, way. Well, yes, of course. Yeah. My view was, if it's all right to do it, then it's all right to talk about it. Mm. But doing it and pretending you're not doing it, it, well, where's the justification in that? That's to protect oneself. What about the other person who is 50% of the of the setup, the relationship? Yeah. So, you know, and that's what I've always astonished me, that, you know, I'd be, I'd be told... What, <clears throat> I remember your father saying to me once, why couldn't you be like the other wives where I work and just avert your gaze? Mm. I said, well, but if it's all right to do it, why wasn't it all right to tell me about it? Well, look how you react. Well, yes. <laughs> Does he mean by that, you know, you were digging... Were you digging in to find out what he was up to? Do you mean, Or is he just saying... He would tell he would tell you, but then he wants you to no, not even no. bring it up. No, of course, he never told me. He lied through his teeth. That's what he was best at, unfortunately. Not that good at it if you kept finding out. Well, no, he, well, no. All right, it came more, most naturally to him, but no, he wasn't terribly good at it. Right. And then the other thing I was thinking was, you know, so you grew up with a father who was very faithful and um, single-minded in terms of making yeah like we talked about the canteen story uh, and obviously very opinionated and judgmental on things of that ilk mm. um, but how do you effect. think that affected you then and your you as a woman going into finding a man or men um, having grown up with this father figure who was so down straight down the line on that front and then finding out that in your experience, you know, from your experience, not all men were like that. Well, and a lot of women also. Sure, you know. of course. And um, you're, no, you're very observant and it did affect me. Of course it did. But I... I've, I mean, do you think you went into relationships naively thinking that it, you know, that it would be like your father was? Um, no. No, I was I, I was I was slightly wiser than that, but I just thought that if we if if in a relationship we could have an arrangement whereby we had honesty, then the rest of the stuff could be dealt with as it came along if it had to be dealt with, 
but in the meantime would probably prevent a, a lot of problems arising in the first place. That was naive, I think. Okay. Um, so if, for instance, then my dad, instead of, you know, shagging everything that moved, uh, being probably giving him some credit there, if anything, because um, I'm sure some people said no to Stuart. Love him as I do. Um, but if he'd come to you and said, oh, I'm, I'm attracted to this woman at work, uh, I'd quite like to sleep with her before he did it. How do you think you would genuinely actually have reacted to that? Because it's all well and good, I think, saying in hindsight, you know, I just wish you'd have been honest about it. But in reality, surely that would have broken your heart and made, you know, and well, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have said to him, go for it. I'm thank you for being honest. Let's see what happens afterwards. Funnily enough, many years later, that very thing did happen to me quite early on in a relationship, a new relationship. Um, it was about, I don't know, 12 years ago, so it wasn't, mm-hmm. it was the last real relationship that I, I had. And uh, he said that very thing. Um, and I was so shocked because, as I say, it was so early in the relationship and he seemed so delighted that, that we were an item. I, I was completely shocked and I did say, well, okay, um, We'll, I said, we'll have an open relationship then. I mean, I just didn't know what else to say. I wasn't going to... We were in a public place for a start. I wasn't going to stamp about. And in any event, it was too early in the relationship for me to make demands. Mm. So I just thought this would be the intelligent thing to say. And then he, he was actually going away. Mm. So it, it was that he, he, he might find himself in a situation while he was away rather than the fact that he'd met somebody. And um, his reaction was complete shock. And I said, we'll have an open relationship. Because um, he was happy to have an open relationship on his end, but I didn't remember want it to be on yours. vividly, he, he looked at me aghast and said, well, that wouldn't work. And I said, well, why not? And then he stood up and he stormed out of the pub we were in um, and didn't speak to me for days. Do you think that, is it possible, is it so, possible that he did that, as in told you in advance, because you will, may have spoken about your previous relationships and said, you know, all I ever asked for was honesty and they were never honest with me until they were, until possibly, they'd been found out. Quite possibly, because we'd known each other a long time. Right. Um, we'd been friends for many years, so we'd, we'd sort of crossed the line. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I suppose I felt it was the only answer that I could give. And because he was going away, it meant that I had a couple of weeks to think about it and decide how I wanted to handle this situation. But also presumably a couple of weeks of, of being upset and wondering what he was up to. Yes, but I, I, just, I just needed to buy myself some time at that because I was so shocked. Right. So I don't know. Do we, do we always know what we will do as a result of something we've said? I don't think we do. Mm. Sometimes we come up with the best thing that springs to mind at the time. And I think that was one of those. So if I'd said it, if your father had said it to me, I think it would have depended on whether it was before or after I had children. Mm. I think once you have children, the rules have to be pretty... But he'd been unfaithful to you before you had... Oh, yeah, we'd split up and all sorts of nonsense. Right. Yeah. I'm not trying to... Not in any way... I I think the reason why I think this is worth talking about is because I think it's incredibly relatable to people, whether they've had children or not, to be in situations like this. But I think what you don't hear about a lot or the stories you don't hear a lot about are the people who've been through all of that, had children, come out the other side and have like a, a hindsight view on it. 
you know, in my experience, when I and, and this is what this podcast is about, it, when I talk to people or when I talk to my friends, and they're in these situations where that we've all been in, where you you know you're you're with someone and it's you've split up, and then you think, oh, should we get back together? And maybe you do it over and over and over, mm. and everyone tells you, oh, it's you have to not do it, you have to not do it. But sometimes, you know, oh, you're yeah. drawn back to people. Well, there's a, reality. There's an awful lot of um, needing to win as well involved in all that, which. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I've got a girlfriend who who um, is has a a partner, a husband who really she should have got rid of years ago. He treated her absolutely appallingly, and he ended up with another woman, and and she took him back, and she and now she's basically looking after him because he's not very well. And I said, why on earth did you, you know, he behaved so appallingly. And she said, I had to win. She said, I had to beat that other woman. Right. I said, yeah, but but she was getting the rough end of the deal. She was going to get him. I mean, the man's an arsehole. Mm. He's stolen money from her and all sorts of things. No, she had to win. And there's an awful lot of that in relationships as well. Yeah. Got to win. Power games. Yeah. Um, I mean, but that example sounds, and and a lot of these are, but it sounds like codependency as well. And it might, might be easier for her to say, oh, I had to win, even though that, that is a great what comes across to me is a great kind of rare line of honesty from someone. It doesn't sound like something that someone would openly admit that often. But also it might be slightly easier for her to say that to you than to say, I need him, I can't live without oh. him, when when, he, when you know he's done all this stuff. And also she she could live a lot better without him because he's so damn needy and, and, and difficult. But So basically hers was a pyrrhic victory, you know. Yeah. But, but very often we're... we're that's what people do. They'd rather have a pyrrhic victory and, and, and end up with the thing that is worse for them mm. than, than, than actually have that strength to walk away. That's the difficult one. I was going to ask, you know, what would you change about your relationships? But then it got, it got me thinking really quickly about um, the kind of interesting kind of difficulty of looking back probably on your relationships, your, you know, what I'd call your main two relationships, or certainly the two that affected my life, so my father and then my stepfather, with whom you were both, you were with both for nine years. Is that right? Overall? That's right, yeah. Right. Um, so particularly when it comes, I guess, to with my dad, I wonder how do you feel now looking back in terms of things you would change, but also when, you know, yes, he treated you badly continuously, but also you had the children with him with which you're most probably most you know I'm not picking myself up but it's the thing that makes you happiest in your life and most proud my and biggest stuff like achievement that. yes right. so how does that kind of manifest itself in terms of your thought processes looking back on your life and thinking you know things you would have changed or could have done differently to make you happier now were it, were it not for, for you boys um what I would have changed would, would be that I would not have got involved with your father in the first place but you hated him when you first met him anyway, right? Funnily enough, yes, I did. But the truth is that I was incredibly broody. And, and here's another problem. That what, I get, what age was that then? Well, late when, 20s. Mm. And the broodiness was just getting... And in those days, that was late not to have had children. I mean, I gave birth to your brother when I was 31. And there was something on my notes in the hospital. I don't know if I've got the wording right. It was something like elderly prima gravida or something. Right. Um, and I think I invented your father, really. I mean, he had great qualities as well. And, and we had the music 
that we could write together, yeah. which was so a for very anyone important. who doesn't. I mean, let's assume that nobody has listened to any of the other podcasts I've done. My parents were both musicians, and they met as a result of working at the same record company. Yeah, right. Really, I should have known better, and I did know better. Talk it's... to me about what you mean when you say you invented him. Well, I, I, I believed that he had qualities that it that only I could could expose and and reveal and it's pathetic I think that's quite common I think that's quite a common feeling where people if they're telling you about their relationship issues and they won't be as honest as you've just been I think but what they feel is only they are capable of seeing the real person yes I think it's classic stuff Mm. um so it, yes, I call it in, in invention. I mean, I, I don't want. Can you to... give any? Can you give any examples of of what that meant on a day to day basis? I mean, other than I guess the adultery that we've talked about. Well, he'd been married before. He had a daughter, of mm. course, your your sister, and um, he he could have been a better father, clearly, um, and I, I I therefore should not have chosen him to have my babies with but I was so broody that I would I would almost have sort of you know chosen anybody isn't that dreadful and that was incredibly honest uh, and I certainly I certainly know of you know friends of mine people in my friendship circle where I look at them and think I think there's an element of that potentially where it gets to a certain point listen mother nature is a very powerful force mm. she's not interested in in our hearts She's interested in the procreation of the various species, and we're one of them. And uh, that's all that matters, really. And you said a fascinating thing there about um, having seen how he, my dad treated his daughter, my sister Tracy, when he, when you met him. So how did you weigh up, how did you justify not being overly impressed with that? with them getting together with this person because you you always from what I've heard and the way she talks about you and the way you talk about my sister even though she wasn't yours treated her incredibly well from the first time you met her so I wonder whether you were like well I can bring more to her as a parent with him and that might make help me justify being with him and then maybe even having children with him myself by kind of maybe like making him a better father, making it more of a family oh, unit. yeah, teaching him, mm. teaching him um, how to do it. You know, I, I would say, have you phoned your daughter yet? You know, have, have, you, have, have you done that today? Have, or have you done that this week or whatever? I just felt he needed some gentle nudging. Mm. Very often the male of the species have, has a few elements missing, courtesy mm. of Mother Nature, who seems to have given the vast majority of them when it comes to that whole rearing thing yeah. to, to the female. If it had just... You've already said, I asked you... You know, I, I've asked, I asked these men not to be faithful, but to be honest. If... Because in the end, there was a drugs issue, which is one of the reasons yeah. you ended it with my father. But if, it had, if he had just continued to be unfaithful, do you think you would have actually stayed with him? No, I don't think I would. I, that's, I think I'd have got sick of it and I'd mm. have found somebody else, probably. Yeah, good. Um... It never got to a stage with you then, which is kind of where I think it probably would with me if I were in your shoes, where it's like, well, if all these people are going to treat me like this anyway, I might as well get in there first and just 
take every opportunity I have to... Yeah, I didn't do that. Um, never, temp- never kind of tempted? No. No, it wasn't. It just wasn't in my nature. But I had been raised by a very, very strict father, particularly. Mm. And uh, I was the eldest of four, so I was the little mother. So it just wasn't in my nature. So you'd been a mother from a very early age in in, in one way or another. And uh, I think you know this, but even my own mother once said that she found me to be a bit of a prude. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, not many mums are telling their daughters that. I think most... Most parents are hoping that that's the case a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I think I know that my mother was quite wayward and my father was her sobering influence, Mm. um, which is why she put up with so much of his sort of nonsense, which was not infidelity because her father was a serial shagger. You see, here we go. Grandma's father. Grandma's father. Yeah, he was a musician. Right. (laughs) And, uh, he, ja- he was a jazz musician, wasn't he, or something? No, he was a silent movie pianist. Oh, silent movie, yeah, right, yeah. Okay. And uh, so she was looking for stability. And because she had some of her father's genes, and she'd been very wayward, and she'd had to be packed off to her grandmother's at 14 because she was shinning. She tied some, I think she knotted some sheets together right. to get out of her bedroom to go to the local... TB sanatorium where there were lots of young men, right. patients, you know. Good for her. So she was, oh yeah, so she was a real handful. So she met my father, who I suspect, I suspect that he was a virgin when they married. Mm. Yeah, I believe so. I, I, yeah. I can't know because we never sat and had this kind of conversation. No. But uh, I Which do is a suspect shame, that. Because I think the way that you feel about your father isn't quite, um, you know, isn't, I think it's... Um, shaded by the last couple of years when you know a grandma had died and he was very very old and angry yeah and I my feeling is that actually he you think he hates you or hated you but I think he loved you very much but you're just you can't remember back past those last couple of years because he was so mean over those last couple of years I think I I don't know if he'd only had a bloody podcast then this could have been (laughs) you could have had this chat and it'd be recorded for eternity we could have done the truth is that I'm sure that I could have sat down and had conversations with my mother um, but I didn't want to I I wanted her to remain my mother I didn't want to scratch beneath the surface interesting whereas you do yeah, but I mean, I'm 40. It's taken a while. Well, yeah, but I, I was 60 when she died. Sure. So yeah, I, I mean, and it's a generational thing. I think, it, I think it, you, you know, it's just become more apparent that people talking is way better than people not talking for everybody's yes. mental health. And I suspect my sister has probably had some conversations with my mother when she was alive. Right. Um, of which I was unaware, but I'm happy to remain unaware. Isn't that weird? Well, yeah, that's you know, absolutely your prerogative isn't it yeah. um so i'm going to bring us on to uh, another very important moment in well very difficult probably the most difficult moment of your life but also something that i suspect having known myself since my early 20s um has probably affected my life probably more than i even am aware so i wonder if talking about it might help as well and it's a topic that you know i mentioned to you before we went on that doesn't really get talked about. What is being talked about in public more a lot now is um, sexual abuse, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the narrative of sexual abuse a lot of the time when it's talked about is of 
it happening to young people, by which I mean, you know, teenagers, obviously, or kids, first and foremost, but then teenagers and people in their 20s and possibly 30s. But you were actually sexually assaulted when you were in your early 50s. Mm. And we talked about it for the first, you told me for the first time, I think when I was, I remember it being when I came back from university one weekend. Um, I think you thought it was maybe a bit earlier, but... No, no, that, no. I'm, I'm surprised it was that soon. That's, certainly... that's kind of how I remember it. Um, and also this was uh, kind of at the very beginning of when date rape was being talked about and Rahipnol specifically. And you were a victim of date rape. And I wanted us to talk about it and find out how you feel that has affected the rest of your life after that in terms of in general, but also in terms of being able to have relationships and trust people, even if you, you know, you, I doubt you trusted any man before that, but it must be a fucking nightmare since then. <laughs> okay, well, um, I just think, I've got to say, I think the term date rape is a misnomer. Go on. For a start, because... Because you weren't on a date. Well, exactly, mm. exactly. So uh, I also have a feeling... And I said this to the to the policewoman that I, I had the, the, the conversation with sometime after it happened. I said, I, I feel somehow that the word rape is wrong, that rape suggests somebody was beaten around the head and dragged down an alley. But the date rape drug thing, as it's called, doesn't involve any violence at all mm. because the, the, the victim is utterly compliant. Yeah. So you wrote, could you explain to us a little bit about you you writing an article quite soon afterwards, uh, anonymously, that then appeared in a a newspaper. Mm. And then what I thought I'd do is is just read the article out, because that'll explain what happened. And it was written at the time, which I think is also really important. Yes, it was contemporaneous. But but talk us through just quickly before I read it, um, how it came about that you thought that was a good thing for you to do and to to make help with awareness. Two things. One was that the few things that we were reading about at that time in the newspapers about these date rape drugs pertained to the USA. Right. That's why when it happened to me, I... I and what year was this? 1999? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't find anything out. I wasn't on the internet. I didn't know what was going on. And I had to reach out to my sister and a friend who were on the internet to try and do some research. So the initial thing that I wrote was for them as memories started coming back. And then... I did eventually speak to the police, and then I thought, for God's sake, I'm now 52. I'd read this happened just before my, I think just before my 52nd birthday, something like that. And I thought, women of my age think that they're impervious. You know, they're 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 invulnerable. It's not going to happen to them because they don't go out on dates so much. I mean, this is before online dating, sure. of course. Yeah. And um, I wanted to alert women of of an age to the fact that they were also vulnerable. And so I phoned up a, 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 an ed, a woman's editor and I said, would you be interested in an anonymous article written by a woman, a middle-aged woman, who had been the victim of a date rape drug? A drug and she bit my hand off. She didn't ask me who. She said, we've been looking for that very thing. Right. So yes, by, I said, well, I'll get an email to you. And I emailed it to her. And they truncated it, of course, course, but it was published. And that was the reason I did that was I wanted to alert 
older women who probably, and I'm glad I did because in fact then online dating started yeah. to pick up and so on and people in that position. Are, I mean, also, I don't think back then a lot of younger women were were really telling the tell, full story. Well, maybe not. I mean, it was very difficult. It was disappointing when I, because I, I didn't want to give my name to the police. You were 18 or 19 hmm. when this happened. And 18. I didn't want you to have that on top of everything else. And you weren't in a great place at that time because you were fretting about what you were going to do with your life when you finished. Still <laughs> Still. <laughs> well, anyway, that was so, so she said, if you won't give us your name, you are an unreliable witness. Right. So, you know. So, yeah. So at the time, you didn't want me to find out, basically. Oh, no, right. I didn't. I, I did. And I didn't want your brother to find out even. No. He was a bit older. Okay, so I'm going to read this article. It's quite long. I will, uh, but this is the non, so this is the, the full article, article that you wrote that they then edited yeah. to put in the mirror. Okay. When a woman reaches 50, she tends to assume that she has either experienced or deliberately avoided experiencing just about everything possible. Certainly, she likes to think that she is aware of all the dangers associated with being female, particularly if she is single. Becoming single again in my 40s took some adjusting to. It had not been my choice, and for three or four years it was difficult to see anything other than the disadvantages of my situation. But gradually I began to almost enjoy it sometimes, eventually even learning to savour the pleasure of going to a function as a single person and meeting and enjoying conversations with people I might never have met had I been with a partner. I started to relish the fact that I now had complete freedom to choose where I went and what I did, that I was in control, and that was my big mistake. I had been invited to a big charity function at a rather splendid venue. The invitation came from the organiser of the event, and I realised that I would know no one there but him, and that he would be too busy organising to be able to spend any time with me. But hell, I could cope with that. I'd become rather good at it. And sure enough, as soon as I arrived at the champagne reception, I was invited to join a party of people who had noticed that I was alone and were only too happy to include me. I chatted with the husbands, I chatted with the wives, and even allowed myself a silent word of congratulation. I was doing well. When we were called into dinner, I found that I was sitting at a table with another mix of people, none of whom, of course, I knew, but they were equally charming. In fact, during the course of the evening, you could almost say that friendships were forged. Certainly one couple had given me their address and telephone number and invited me to visit them if I was ever in their area. I had a splendid time. I was careful to limit my intake of alcohol because I had been asked to play a part in some of the charity presentations. And so, aside from one glass of wine with dinner, I drank only mineral water. One of the husbands at my table danced with me and I was relieved that I had straps sewn onto the bodice of my evening dress. Very safe, very respectable. Many of the guests had been given rooms at a nearby hotel, and we were taken back there on the coaches which had brought us. My new friends from the dinner table suggested we repair to the bar, which was filling up with others in evening dress, presumably guests from the same function. I did have a little more wine now, but still plenty of mineral water. It was late, but I was enjoying myself and felt far more alive than I would have done had I been drinking alcohol all evening. We sat around a large, low table and talked and laughed a great deal. The pleasure was marred only briefly by a belligerent drunk who approached me and made a rather offensive sexist remark. I barely turned my head towards him as I demolished him with one of my damning one-liners and then returned again to the conversation. Occasionally, one of the husbands would announce that he was getting a round in 
and so a glass of water or wine would arrive in front of me without my paying too much attention. I was vaguely aware that the belligerent drunk was behind me, leaning against the wall and talking to another, younger man, but I was enjoying the company and gave no thought to him. Unexpectedly, I started to feel a little strange, light-headed and even somewhat distant. I thought that maybe I had had enough wine, and anyway, it was very late by now and well past my bedtime. I stood up and announced to my companions at the table that I had had a wonderful evening, that it had been a pleasure to meet them, but it was really time that I went to my room. I floated to the lift, and as I pressed the button, a man entered the lift and the door closed. When it opened again, I stepped out, glided towards my room, I was feeling really good by now, about four inches off the ground, and took out the card to open the door. As I walked into the room, I was followed by a man, the man in the lift, the man I had noticed earlier leaning against the wall with the belligerent drunk. The door closed behind us and I said nothing. I didn't demand to know what the hell he thought he was doing in my room. I didn't shout at him to get out. I didn't yell or scream. He pushed me back onto the bed. I watched him do it, as if from afar. He lifted up my long skirt, pulled down my tights and pants until they came off, still inside my shoes. I know that because that's how they were when I woke up. I watched as he raped me. There was no struggle, not even a token, no, no, I'm not that kind of girl protest. I felt no fear at all, sensing rather that I was observing something of which I didn't altogether approve. I said to him quietly, this is ridiculous, I don't even know your name. He was not violent, although he was, as they say in novels, urgent. His activities were curtailed by the sound of my telephone ringing, and I reached out a hand to answer it. To this day, I don't know for sure who it was, but I have since had my suspicions. Something about the sound of the phone seemed to bring him to his senses. As he stood and adjusted his clothing, I tried to sit up, but couldn't seem to comprehend the difference between ceiling and floor, and lurched forward helplessly. He reached out and caught me, sat me up on the edge of the bed, saying, Don't fall off the bed now, will you? And left the room. I awoke about four hours later, feeling like I had an axe lodged in the back of my head. I lay there for some time, trying to work out where I was and why, and then gradually it dawned on me. I had had sex. But who with? A stranger. Who? Why? What have you done? I kept saying to myself out loud. You don't do that. You've never done that. In 50 years, you've never even come close to doing that. I was shaking. I could see the tights and pants still inside the shoes on the floor, a grim reminder of my appalling behaviour. I was disgusted with myself. I got out of my clothes, into the bath, then dressed, packed and fled. I didn't even check out of the hotel. I was so ashamed. I think I shook for two days and nights. I was mortified and confused, not least of all because I could remember virtually nothing. How could I think so little of myself that I would have sex with a stranger? All I could remember of him was that he had dark hair and that he was considerably younger than me, perhaps around 30. Could that be it? Could I have been flattered by the interest of a man just because he was 20 years my junior, even though he was a total stranger? A week later, I awoke at four in the morning with the mother of all migraines. It lasted until midnight, during which time I was sick many times. The following day, I was completely exhausted and spent the whole day in my dressing gown. And then, during the ensuing week, tiny fragments of memory about that night began to come to me as if from nowhere. They didn't necessarily make a great deal of sense, 
because they were so disjointed. But at least now I was beginning to remember something. The man in the lift, the belligerent drunk. Although for the life of me, I still to this day can't remember what he said to offend me or what I said in reply. A few days later, I was reading the newspaper and a word leapt out at me from the page. Rehypnol. I'd read about it before. Well, scanned articles about it before, really. Because at my age, it didn't seem to have any relevance to my life and I don't have daughters. And even as I saw the word this time, I didn't trouble to read the piece. And yet over the next day or two, it seemed to haunt me. Could this, after all, have something to do with what had happened to me? Or was I seeking to justify what was simply an appalling error of judgment on my part? I had spoken of my experience with no one. The sense of shame was too overwhelming. But now I began to wonder if I should, now that I had the beginnings of a suspicion that perhaps my acquiescence might have been brought about by a drug. I confided in my sister and then in a close friend. I told them that I wanted to share with them everything that I could remember because it was desperately important that I tell of my experience before researching the subject. I needed to know that I was telling the truth and not just clutching at straws in order to assuage my guilt. One of them then accessed everything she could find about Rehypnol on the internet. She phoned me up. You've got to read this, she said. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that this is what happened to you. So, thank you firstly for letting me read that out. How did, I mean, you dug this up again a few days ago because you knew we were doing this podcast. How did you feel when you first read it back again? Quite interesting. And I guess also when you heard your son reading it out. Well, it might be interesting. It is interesting. Um, that, that was written in 2000. Or certainly it was saved on my computer in 2000. Right. So I, I managed to get it off an old hard drive. Um, and I emailed it to you and to your brother, out of fairness. But interestingly, I didn't read it for a couple of days. Right. And it's not as if it's a, an issue for me. It really isn't. Mm. It's just that for some reason, I didn't want to address it yet. And then two or three nights ago, I thought, OK, I'll read that. And it was interesting to read it. Um, it raises some some questions for me that I, I won't bore you with. Why do you think they'd be boring? Um I mean, I should say, just before you answer that, I have no recollection of ever having read that before the no, other day. No, you wouldn't have done, because the, one of the reasons I, I, I thought I might never find it on the old hard drive was because I, I remember deliberately saving it with a name that wouldn't alert you, because you sure. used to use my computer. Mm. And, of course, back in that, the day, I didn't have... In those days, I didn't have the, the internet. So the reason that I went on the internet was to yeah. research this very issue. Yeah. Um, particularly because, officially, it, it, it didn't seem to be in this country. Everything that appeared in newspapers about rohypnol, or date-rape drugs, as they called them, um, seemed to be happening in the USA mm. and not here. So I think I was, looking back, I think I was probably one of the early victims. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't researched that, actually, to find out when it first started appearing here. Mm. And you talked a lot about it. The thing that really stands at home, all of it, obviously, it's appalling, but the things that stand out to me are you talking about your own shame and how it links to your, I guess, your sense of self in terms of how you've been as a woman in terms of sex with people you don't know and relationships and that kind of stuff. Well, think about this, Barney. If... If it had been a way of life for me, which, which it is for some people, and that's fine, yeah. I don't judge anybody. 
if it had been a way of life, then I would just assumed that that was another one. Right. Had I been a party girl, having fun wherever she could find it, which is absolutely fine, as I said, I would not. Have, I would never have suspected. I mean, I'd have thought, bloody hell, I must have had too much to drink. I didn't think I'd drunk right. that much. And presumably, that's to suggest then that it might be have been and still be far more prevalent than people even realise. Well, I fear that could be the case. Mm. I, I fear it could. Um, I think the thing that really made me feel so ashamed was the fact that I'd been so totally compliant. And just, you know, why did I not do the sort of thing that I would normally do, which is say, who the f*** are you? Get out of my room! And scream and shout. And I didn't. I mean, it was just so out of character. Just to be this, you know, whatever you say sort of person. Right. You know, just... But a, a full out-of-body experience. Yeah, it was. It was very an, much An incapability like of saying anything that you would normally say. Yeah, but I wasn't scared. And I do remember when I reached over to answer the hotel phone, um, my arm was like a, a lead weight. Right. I didn't write it in there, but, but I, I do recall that very vividly. Um, you know, I mean, we, we've all been drunk, but, you know... Not to that doesn't happen, mm. you know, and, and you can wake up with a hangover, but you know, feeling like somebody's put an axe through the back of your head no, that's it's really severe. And I really had been very, very careful about what I'd had to drink that night because I was on duty, I, I was actually mm. working, you know, working. And you mentioned before I read out the article, um, that you then afterwards, uh, once you'd kind of put two and two together, you then did speak to the police about it. Eventually, I guess yeah. it's worth telling us kind of what the what happened when you did that and, and, how you, and whether you felt it was worthwhile having done that? Um, no, I didn't, I, I, I didn't regret trying, but because... They took you to a safe house? Yeah, they did, yeah, in Wimbledon. I don't remember where, but I remember it was a safe house in Wimbledon. She was very nice, very clearly very experienced um, with rape issues. And, and I, I do remember saying to her, you're going to think I'm mad, but... I have a suspicion that there were two people involved here, that one was... My suspicion is that one probably supplied the wherewithal. The belligerent drunk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other, who was younger and better looking, uh, was supposed to get the ball rolling. And then when I was completely out... He'd come in. That would be what the phone was. That's... I said to the police, you're going to think I'm mad... And she said, not at all. She said, you have no idea how many rapes take place in tandem. Mm. People don't seem to realise. Right. And I didn't know. No, I, I've, never, I've never been aware of that as a, reg, as, a, as a common thing. It's what she said to me. She said, yeah. But because I wouldn't give my name, and you, I've already explained why I wouldn't give my name, because I didn't want you or your brother to be traumatised by it. Not all my fa- Actually, my, my parents too, to be fair, and my yes. father never knew. I eventually told my mother, but my father never knew. Um, I was an unreliable witness. All I wanted them to do was put a flag against their names, because by this stage I had ascertained who they were. And how did you ascertain who they were? Well, I, I knew who he was anyway. He was a, 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 he was a snooker player, I'd, uh, he, a bit of a celebrity. A professional snooker player. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I had 
after a few weeks, I phoned up the, the guy, the old friend who had invited me and asked me to do this celebrity pulling, you know, the yep. raffle tickets thing. Um, and I, I didn't want to tell him what had happened. He was a huge bear of a man. Well, Cockney. He was, uh, he'd been in management. I suspect by then he was, he used to manage people in the music business, but I think, I suspect by then he must have been managing people in sport. Mm. Um, but I did know that he had been acquainted with some pretty dangerous people. And he was fond of me, you know, he was like a big brother to me. And I, if I told him what had happened, he'd, he'd, he'd have killed them. Right. You know, he was very, so I didn't dare. So I just phoned him up and I said... Can I just ask then, so why, why, do you, why do you feel any need to protect them when they just done what they'd done to you? He's a good man. He could have... Well, he was, he's dead now, but he, he was a good well, man. He, he could have ended have up in prison. jail, of course. Right. No, no, no. I mean, nothing is worth, it's, it warrants that. So I just phoned him up after two or three weeks and said, look, I'm sorry I haven't phoned you before. I just wanted to say thank you for inviting me. What lovely people I met. And I said, who was the ugly drunk, some sort of sportsman? And he, and he said, oh, and t- he told me he was an horrible piece of work. Right. So I said, oh, that's right. And, and, and who was the younger guy he was with? And he told me. Right. And, uh, and that's the professional snooker player? Yeah. And then I, a few, oh, maybe a year or so later, a girlfriend of mine who is a, a keen snooker fan phoned me up and said, turn BBC Two on, he's on. Right. And I looked and um, there he was. So that's where my question was going to be leading is, obviously in the last 10 years, five years especially, people have now come out and been, uh, women have been um, brave enough to come out and tell of stories where they've been sexually abused or assaulted or abused in any way um and particularly that has kind of started from or people uh, a lot of people say that they felt brave enough to be more honest about it because famous people have started to do it as well so even in the last few weeks oh. uh, you know uh, marilyn manson has been out uh, you know outed by a, a number of his exes as a, a terrible sexual abuser uh, i can think of shia labeouf recently you know along with many, many other examples. Why do you feel the need to protect somebody who treated you so appallingly? Is it because of you'd be afraid of retribution? Well, let's be honest here. Um, the guy would... Deny be, it. No, no, he'd say, I had sex with her. She didn't say no. Mm. Well, she didn't say no. Let me tell you, I didn't say no. Right. The problem was that this is why I think rape is too strong a word. You know, I was utterly compliant. But if you hadn't been given a drug, then well, you how wouldn't. How do we prove? Then you... This is the problem with that drug. It doesn't stay in the system long enough for you to realise. Sure, but arguably you what you're doing is you're allowing a justification for it that to me isn't there because it just would never have happened. It just wouldn't have happened otherwise. You've, you know, it's not like... You know, the old argument of these things, like, oh, she was, you know, she was drunk, she was gagging well, for course. it, she was begging for it, all of that stuff, which is what people have been, men particularly, have been saying for years of about course. women in similar scenarios. Absolutely. But you know the difference, you, you've drunk alcohol, you know the difference between how you felt all the other times and how you felt that time. He and I, this guy and I, had not had a conversation at all. Right. 
we'd not been introduced. But so what I'm but what I'm saying is, it's clear, and I think it would be clear to any woman listening who'd had similar situation, that what you suspect happened is what happened. But it feels a bit like you're protecting the possibility that it didn't happen like that somehow. No, it's uh, and protecting him a little bit as well. You've got to remember that the the the, the reason. Can we talk about Noel Clark? Because yes, this is good very example. Current. Yeah. The reason that BAFTA gave him the award, even though they knew there were question marks against him, was because they had no evidence. There were, there were rumours, there were anonymous mm-hmm. complaints against him, but nobody had given their name. And the names weren't given until The Guardian was given the names and then they published. And then BAFTA say, had we known what was in the guard, going to be in The Guardian, yeah. then he wouldn't have got the award. There were 20, I think there are more yes. now, yeah. women. Now, that's different. The problem is when there's one woman, this is why I wanted to put the flag against their names yeah. with the police even as an unreliable witness, so that if there were other complaints, it, it would add sure. veracity okay. to... Absolutely, and I totally understand that. But I don't think for a second that the police can be fucked to really check that stuff. And that's why the police have never done anything on Noel Clark. So why don't you contact somebody in the press and say, look, just so you know, this is a name. these are two names like historical stuff, especially with the darts player, I think, if mm-hmm. we think he was really the person driving it, right? Yeah, I, I suspect. So I have no proof. In terms of historical abuse, you might you might be the first person to go forward and as a result, 30 other women could come forward? Possibly. Hadn't occurred to me, really. I, I, I think... I, I did... You know my doctor girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember telling her about what had happened and, and she gave me some very sage advice at the time she said you weren't beaten around the head and dragged down an alley you had all the tests you didn't catch anything you weren't a virgin Mm. of of 16 years old who got pregnant pregnant, none of that put it to one side let it go and that's what that's what i've done but that's what women have been made to do all those years you see what i mean i look I totally understand. I don't think you should have done it any different at the time, necessarily. Right. But I'm, sa- I'm just saying these women who are now being honest about it are opening the, op- the possibility for women in generations' time to then not have to behave in the same way you had to behave just because, you know, her saying, your doctor friend saying that is just being like, it, it, she might as well have just said, oh, look, you didn't get killed, so just forget about it. That's kind of what she was saying, right. really, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. But but also, it's like... But it helped me. But also, the crime... Yes. Behind fine. me. Fine. But, you know, and look, I'm probably just being too passionate because I'm your son, I guess, at <laughs> this point, and I'm, you know, it makes me angry. You want retribution. Well, I, you know, it's crossed my mind over the years, for sure. But it's not about retribution so much as just... I'm not even saying you should definitely do this, but what I'm suggesting is that... It's interesting to me, I guess, that it's not crossed your mind because you see all these kind of more modern examples of where people are now being brave enough to speak against people who have all the power and all the money. You know, if no one had spoken out about Jimmy Savile, it would have remained just the open secret that it was, you know, the hiding in plain sight. I I do agree with you. Okay, so let me re- let me try try and re-angle the question to a way where we can probably come to some kind of agreement Mm -hmm. or response, which is if you read in the Guardian tomorrow morning that that very famous professional darts player oh right and that famous professional snooker player 
had been talked about by some brave women, you would absolutely of course. get in touch. Add to the list, no problem. And I gave their names to the police all those years yeah. ago, you know, and, and if they've got their record still, but, can you, well, imagine that. But I did. Thank you so much for talking about this on the podcast. I think it's all really fascinating and I hope really will relate uh, and be relevant to people listening. And... Um, yeah, like I said before, I just think it's also, you know, not just because we're family and how difficult it was for us, but I think it is a, uh, specifically that part we talked about in the second half is a very, is a topic that doesn't get discussed, really, which is the fact that rape can happen to anyone and it's not just a, you know. Absolutely uh, You know, anyone. you should never, I guess what I mean is you should never assume that you're, like you did, you said you said in the article, you know, you assumed it wouldn't affect you. Well, no, all nobody's going to behave like that with me. I was more concerned with, with how I came across, to, you know, having straps sewn on the on the bodice of my dress, mm. so that I didn't look like I was sort of putting out. Mm. It never occurred to me that I wouldn't need to put out because somebody would just take advantage of the fact that I was there on my own. I mean, that that's basically the shock to me, which was, you know. It shouldn't happen to women of my age. Honestly, it's been a really, uh, I think, important conversation and also just a great start for this podcast, albeit slightly more serious than a lot of the kind of... Uh, well, all all stuff to do with love and relationships is very serious, but slightly more serious than some of the um, more uh, ghosting-type stuff that we've got coming up. But I uh, was going to apologise to you for the uh, fact that there were, were no laughs. No, no, no. It's, there, were some, there were some laughs, but also, more importantly, just a very serious uh, topic, I think. And guys, thank you so much for listening at home. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, either as yourself or I'm more than happy for people to come on under a pseudonym if it would make you feel more comfortable, please email crazystupidlovepod at gmail.com. That's crazystupidlovepod at gmail.com. Also, use that email address to send in anything you'd like discussed on the show do give us a follow on instagram at crazy stupid love pod and please do press that subscribe button and rate the podcast on apple Podcasts. thank you so much for listening and goodbye